And we are going to be in chapter uh, 6, verse 46 of Luke. And once you are there in your uh, Bible, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because the house had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground with no foundation. And when the stream burst against that house, it fell immediately and its ruin was great. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of our study tonight is Dig and Dig Deep. Dig and Dig Deep. In these verses, I think, as Christ summarizes his, uh, his sermon, his most famous sermon, most quoted sermon, most well understood and often used out of context sermon, When he concludes that sermon, both in Matthew's gospel and here in Luke's gospel, he concludes with this same illustration. Uh, This would be the so what moment of the sermon. Every good sermon has such a moment in it. He's not just giving us instructions or ideas or propositions. He's giving us action steps, things we can do in light of the things that he has told us about himself. He doesn't just tell us that certain people are blessed and certain people are doomed. He he doesn't just tell us to love our enemies. He also says, go and actually take these things that I've told you and live them out as you live your life. Don't just hear the words that I say, but also embody and apply them into your life as you go about and you live. This illustration is very difficult to outdo. This is about as foundational of an illustration of the Christian life as there is. And I think there are few more famous pictures of what it is to be a Christian and to build your life on the foundation of Christ. As we get into these verses, I want to uh, just recount to you uh, quickly what this is like um, in, in context of where we've been in the sermon thus far. Remember, we start off the sermon with the famous Beatitudes. That's way back in the early parts of chapter 6. We start off with, blessed are those, and there's descriptors and statements about what someone is like if they are in the kingdom of God. That such a person who's in the kingdom is blessed in a special kind of way. Then we're also told that there's a group of people who are not blessed. In fact, they are under the woes. They are the people who are outside of the kingdom, outside of God's grace, and therefore will have a life that ultimately will yield little to no fruit And they will be found in the day of judgment with very little to show for their lives. And then he turns back to his disciples and he tells them, if you want to be part of the kingdom, how can you identify? How can you test that you are actually part of the kingdom? What's the DNA test? 
And he tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who would abuse us, to bless those who would curse us, to be merciful, to be generous. And then ultimately, he says, as, as you're examining yourself, look for the kind of fruit that you have in your life. Look for the kind of fruit that you bear, because the fruit that you bear tells you about what is actually going on at the core of who you are. The fruit tells you about what you treasure in your heart. And then as he concludes all of these statements in these short verses here that we're looking at this evening, he gets it to the so what part of the text. Why bother examining the fruit in our life? Why bother loving our enemies? Why bother wanting to be part of the blessed as opposed to being part of those who are under God's condemnation? Why bother? Because ultimately, there is one day where it it will matter whether we have a foundation or we have no foundation. And it's not maybe that will happen. It's not a fire insurance policy. This is a guarantee of a coming destruction, of a coming judgment, of a coming test that is so severe that only one kind of house can stand. And the kind of house that stands and the kind of house that falls, it doesn't differ on the quality of the build. It doesn't differ on who is building it. It differs upon which foundation it was laid. That's the only difference between the two houses. So keep that in mind as we move through these verses. He's getting to the so what of the text. He says first and foremost in verse 46, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Simple question. You might remember back to Matthew's gospel and his more famous, more elongated Sermon on the Mount. He actually has a whole paragraph where he uh, explains this statement. In Matthew's gospel, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you did not feed the sick in my name, and you cast out demons in my name, but, but I still don't know who you are? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke's emphasis and his drive is the same. He, he has the, the question, why? And then he has the assessment of their life as it's lived. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But on the assessment of your life, I see that you're not doing the things that I'm telling you to do. You're not actually living as though I'm your Lord. Why is that? Why would you bother calling me Lord, proclaiming my name, professing to be identified with me, but you don't live out the things that I command. Now, this is not just someone who would profess Christ in name only. This is not someone who calls him Lord and then moves on with their life. This is a specific kind of phrase. It only happens a handful of times in the New Testament. In Luke's gospel, there's only a handful of times that it occurs as well. It's the phrase, not Lord. This is not people who say to him, Lord, as the Pharisees do when they question him on the law. These are people who say to him this particular phrase, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord is a phrase of intimacy. It's a phrase of personal, relational knowledge with the person who you're discussing, the person who you're addressing. Here, he has this hypothetical scenario of someone who goes to him on some day and says to him, Lord, Lord. He has in mind someone who intimately knows him. Now, how do we know that this is a phrase of intimacy, a phrase of uh, someone who would profess to relationally be one and know Christ? How do we know? 
Well, the only other times this phrase is used, this pattern of repeating a name is used, is only in intimate relational context. For example, in chapter 8, verse 24 of Luke's gospel, we'll get there in a little bit. In chapter 8, verse 24, his disciples come up to him and say, Lord, Lord. No one else has addressed him by that phrase up until that point in Luke's gospel. This is a hypothetical. The first people who actually say it are his disciples. Those who claim to not only follow him, but also they they move with him as he travels. They go on missions trips with him. They participate in the healings with him. They participate in the miracles with him. These are the people who say first and foremost in Luke's gospel, Lord, Lord. But it's not only restricted to people who address Jesus. Jesus actually uses this phrase to address other people as well. He says, for example, when he's uh, meeting with Mary and Martha in their house and he's, he's discussing and he's teaching and uh, Martha gets very frustrated with the fact that she is the only one who's cleaning and preparing and getting everything ready for the disciples. And she's upset that Mary is there sitting and learning at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus lovingly turns to Martha and he says, Martha, Martha, don't you know? Martha, Martha, what an intimate phrase that he uses. He uses it later, a few chapters later, when he laments over Jerusalem. He doesn't say, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. He's lamenting from an intimate place of care for the city, Jerusalem. He mentions Tyre once when he mourns over them. He mentions Sidon once. He mentions Jerusalem twice in his exhortation because he has an intimate relationship with his people and with the city who he came to save. Elsewhere, it's used at the hour of his betrayal, right before he's betrayed. He goes to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. The context of all those phrases is a context of intimacy. It's not someone who knows the name only. This is not an acquaintance relationship. This is not someone who would profess Christ and think that they don't belong to Christ. This is someone who professes that Christ is Lord, but he's more than that. They profess that he's Lord, Lord. Meaning he's not only Lord, but he's also their relational master. They know him, or at least they claim to know him intimately. This is why this warning is so necessary. This is not people who think that they're on the outskirts. This is people who think that they're safely within the fold of salvation in Christ's name. And he asks the question, why do you say that to me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, intimately refer to me? But on the other hand, you don't do, you don't practice, you don't walk out, you don't live the things that I tell you. This is not works-based righteousness. We've discussed this some last week. This is not someone who's earning favor before God. This is someone who is confirming the statement that they have made previously. It is not good enough for someone to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, if they're not going to live their life in accordance with his words. Because if they don't live in accordance with his words, what they're truly professing by their actions is that they don't actually believe that he's Lord. He's saying, why would you make the claim that I'm your Lord and that you know me? If you're not going to live your life 
in a way that confirms that statement. Why would you say that? One commentator says it very concisely. He says that confession without obedience is a confession without any substance. A confession without any obedience is a confession that has no vitality to it. And I think that this is one of the scariest texts in all of the New Testament because it calls each and every single one of us who calls him Lord, Lord, to examine our lives. This is not a big picture examination for every single person. This is an examination particularly for those who would say that he is Lord, Lord of their life. And what is the examination? What does it look like to say that Christ is Lord, but not to live in accordance with his words? What is that like? He says, everyone who comes to me and who hears my words and who does them, let me paint a picture for you of what it is like for someone to come to me and to hear my words and to do them. Now, this is not a big picture statement. This is a summary statement of something else that he's already said several times in this sermon. Remember in the very first verses of the sermon, he says in verse 18 of chapter 6, it says, those who came to hear him, those who came to hear him are the ones who he's preaching to. Later in verse 27 of this same sermon, he says, but I say to you who hear, and he's addressing this same group of people when he says, the one who comes to me and who hears, and now he's getting to the application, and he's saying to those who also do, the one who comes to Jesus, who hears his words, and then also does the words that they claim. I will show you what that person is like. Verse 48 spells the first half of the illustration. It says, this person, he is like a man who's building a house. And when he's building a house, he digs and he digs down deep and he lays the foundation of the house on the rock. And when a flood arose, and the stream broke against the house, the house was not able to be shaken. Why? Because the house had been well built. The contrary is stated in verse 49. There's another person who hears the words, but the difference is they don't do the words, they don't live out their confession. And that person is like a man who also builds a house But rather than digging and digging deep and getting to the foundation of the rock, this is one who builds a house and picks any plot of land and builds without setting a foundation. And when the stream breaks against that house, the house falls down immediately. And the fall and the ruin of that house is great. So what is the picture here that's being painted for us? What what can we learn from this uh, as we stand thousands of years downstream of this teaching. Well, the first thing to observe is that this is addressed not to anybody, but to disciples. People who profess to come to the Lord. People who hear and intake the teachings of the Lord. And the difference between verse 48 and verse 49 is not in the hearing, it's not in the intake, it's not in the amount of information that they possess. The difference between 48 and 49 is the application of the information that they have. The person who hears and does is the person who digs and gets down to the foundation and builds their whole life upon that foundation. 
And the person who goes to build a house but does not dig down first, does not find a firm foundation, is the person who hears but who does not do. James, in his uh, letter to the church, says that you should not be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word also. Because the one who hears the word but does not do it is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror. And as soon as he looks away, he forgets what he looked like. That's like the person who hears the words of Jesus and who then walks away and has no change as a result. The person who hears and does not immediately take action steps from what they have heard, who does not actually believe what they have seen, they turn and they walk away and they forget. That person is a foolish person. In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, he actually, in introducing these two different builders, says there's one who's a foolish man and one who is a wise man. And in Luke, he doesn't even need to explain that because to us it is obvious who is the one who is wise and who is the one who is foolish. It's easy for us to identify because they both know that a flood's coming, but only one is willing to deal with the reality of the coming flood. Only one of them is able to prepare and plan ahead and have the foresight to build their house so that it will make it to the other end of the storm. The other builder builds as if there is no coming storm and as if their whole life's work is not informed by the fact that it needs to make it over the hurdle of the storm. They are like a man who hears what Jesus says, hears that there is a coming judgment, hears that there is wrath for people, and yet they turn away And when they set about to actually build their life, they don't build with that information helping them to decide how to build. They build as if they had never heard that information to begin with. This illustration actually comes out, it's not new to Jesus, that might surprise you. It actually comes out of Ezekiel chapter 13. And I'd like to turn there with you. Ezekiel chapter 13. And in Ezekiel... This picture is first laid before the people through the mouth of Ezekiel, warning the Israelites of the wrath that is to come from God. Ezekiel chapter 13, and I would like to read starting in verse 10. He's referring now to the false prophets. He says, precisely because they have misled my people saying, peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a dulge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out. And when the wall falls, it will not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a dulge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones of wrath make it to a full end. Verse 14, And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and I will bring it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. And when it fails, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you that the wall is no more, nor are those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who are prophesying concerning Jerusalem and who saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. 
He's referring, in this case, through the prophet Ezekiel, that the fundamental problem in the illustration is that the people who build the wall must build with correct information of what's to come. In both of the negative cases, verse 49 of Luke chapter 6, and here in Ezekiel 13, the problem is the same. The people who are building build as though there is no wrath to come. They build as if the foundation doesn't matter because it's all going to be bright and sunny days from this point forward. The problem in Ezekiel is not that they're building a wall. The problem is they're building a wall that won't be able to withstand the wrath of God. And why do they settle for a lower quality wall? Because their prophets have told them that there is peace, that there is no wrath to come. They say peace, but the problem is the people don't have peace. And because they don't have peace, they build as though they have peace. And then when God's wrath breaks out against them, both their wall and those who prophesied that false peace are swept away as a result. The people in Luke's account in chapter 6, verse 48 and 49, the two men, they both build, but only one of them builds as though the reality of judgment is real. And the picture is the same. The one who builds as though there is no coming judgment is the one who gets swept away in the judgment, them and their house and everything that they built along with it. But in Luke's gospel, we actually get a positive statement from Jesus about what it is like to build in light of the judgment and allow that to inform how you build your life. The positive statement by Jesus is that if you build in such a way that you have a foundation, you have to make sure that that foundation can survive the wrath. That salvation, or sorry, that foundation can survive the coming of the flood that breaks against the structure. In Ezekiel, we get no such positive statement because in Ezekiel's time, this is just the prediction of what is going to happen. But Jesus is drawing from this illustration and bringing it forward. And this is not unique to Jesus. In fact, this illustration is used by the rabbis in the time of Jesus. They actually have a very similar picture. They say there's two builders, one who builds a house out of good structural building blocks and one who builds a house with untempered stone. And the one who builds with solid stone and the one who builds with the poor quality stone, they both build houses, but one of the houses collapses when the storm comes. Same picture. But the difference for the Jewish rabbis and for Jesus is on what they are convinced the validity of the house surviving is. The Jewish rabbis are convinced that the difference between a sturdy house and a weak house is the law and the observance of that law. They are convinced and they teach to their people that the better you keep the law, that is like building a house that is well structurally built. But if you build a house apart from the law, not observing the Torah, then you are the person who builds a house that is poorly constructed and your house will fall. Jesus, same picture, but Jesus disagrees with the rabbis on what will cause the house to survive. Jesus says that there is a certain kind of foundation you need to get down to if you want your house to survive. And you can build great quality structures, but if you don't build on the right foundation, the house will not survive. It doesn't matter how good the building material is, it won't make it if it's the wrong foundation. And what does Jesus mean when he refers to the foundation? He's referring primarily to himself. 
And don't just take my word for it. The New Testament agrees with that assessment of who Christ is. Christ is called, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, the one and only foundation. Paul actually is talking to a whole church in Corinth, and he says, no one can lay any other foundation except that which has been laid, and that one foundation that has been laid is Christ. Now, you can build upon that foundation. You can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. You can build with wood, hay, and straw. And when you build on top of the foundation, judgment will come, and your building, whether it makes it or does not make it, The only truth of the matter is that the foundation is the same, and the foundation causes you to get through. Paul's emphasis in that case is that you should build on that foundation in a wise way, because if you do, you'll be rewarded for it. And if you build in a poor way, you'll be saved, but everything you've ever done in your life will go up in smoke. Paul's emphasis, though, is that Christ is the one and only foundation. There is no foundation that which has been laid other than Christ. People can build on it, but that's the only foundation. In Ephesians chapter 2, the same emphasis, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul uh, will write to the church in Ephesus, and he'll say that the foundation of the church is the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, but the cornerstone of that teaching is Christ Jesus. He is the cornerstone. So, which is it? Is Christ the foundation? Or is it the teachings of the apostles and the prophets? Well, they're actually two sides of the same idea. The first idea is that Christ is actually the foundation. He is the the one true and only foundation that is laid. But in Ephesians chapter 2, the emphasis is that it's not just any kind of Christ. It's not Christ and then other things. It's Christ and the consistent teachings of Christ's apostles and Christ's prophets, which confirm the testimony of who Christ is and what he did. Scripture does not believe in a Jesus that can be whoever you want Jesus to be. There's only one Jesus, and he's delivered to us apostles and prophets who have taught us who he is and what he is like. They've recorded for us his words, and then they pass those truths down through the church. And that is the foundation, the bedrock of the church. It's why, for example, we meet regularly once a week, actually more than that, and we open up those same teachings. And we study them and we labor long hours. And many of you spend time in the morning diving into these same truths because that's the foundation. The foundation really is Christ. But the foundation is not just any kind of Christ. It's the Christ as described in Scripture. It's the Christ as described by the apostles and the prophets, as he has faithfully delivered it to us. That's the foundation. So if that's the foundation, and we're sure of that foundation, why would anyone not build on that foundation? Why is it that Jesus has to warn people who claim to intimately follow him to not make the mistake of not digging and not getting to the foundation before they start to build. Why does he have to warn them of that? Because it is extremely tempting, extremely tempting, to just slap on beautiful building structures without taking the time to get a good foundation established. When my wife and I uh, moved to Indianapolis, the first place we ever lived in was a studio apartment. And it was very tiny, and when we were moving out of that studio apartment and into another place, we were very excited to get a little bit more space. 
And what we ended up doing is we moved into a place that was a recent flip, a duplex. And the nice thing about flips is they look very beautiful on the outside. But if you live in there for more than a week, you start to realize that a lot of this is beautiful things slapped onto a pretty interestingly constructed structure. That there's a lot of questionable things under the beauty of what's been slapped over top. Now it's one thing to live in such a location for a year. It's a totally another thing to set out as your life's mission to build such a structure. The foolishness of building a structure that has no good foundation is magnified by the fact that this is the life's work of someone. This foundation here that is being built is not optional. Every single person who Christ has in mind, both his followers and not his followers, are building a structure. Everyone's building something. What he's referring to is life. As you go throughout your life, you are building something. You are building some kind of a structure. And the difference between whether that structure you build makes it past judgment and into eternity, the difference is not in the quality of the build, although that will hopefully help some. The difference is not that. The difference is where is the foundation of that life rooted and grounded. If the foundation is rooted in the rock, notice the definite article, the, if it's rooted in the rock, then it will stand. And if it's rooted in anything else, no matter how sturdy, no matter how well constructed, no matter how well designed, if it's rooted in anything else, it will fall. Because the difference is not in the construction value, it's not in the building materials, it's not in the quality of the builder or their architectural genius, it's in the one and only foundation. There's two foundations. There's not three, there's not six, there's not 20, there's two foundations. Christ Jesus and his finished work and everything else. You can pick a beautiful plot of land to build your house on. You can pick a flat ground of land. You can pick particularly sturdy looking sand. But at the end of the day, it does not have a foundation. And the storm that's coming is not a storm that will be survivable by some, uh, some poorly constructed foundation. This is not a gentle breeze. This is not light flurries and gentle rainfall. This is a torrential downpour that causes a river to burst against the foundation of the house. This is the kind of judgment, the kind of test that will most definitely sift between a good foundation and a lack of a foundation. There is no surviving that and faking your way through it. I don't know how many of you uh, pay attention to some of the interesting storms we've had in our lifetime, but you, have, you always see these tsunamis that come in and they crash over houses and they crash into land masses and things that you thought were pretty heavy, like cars and trucks, you just see being carried off in the water. And that's interesting to me because when you think about it, a truck or a car doesn't actually have a foundation. It's heavy, but it has no foundation. And so it is very easily carried away by something that can move it. Some buildings survive, those with foundations, but by and large, everything that is not actually anchored down to a sturdy ground is swept away. And it's very telling because that's the same kind of image used here in the text. This is not one, some light storm. This is not necessarily the trials and tribulations of your life. This is the one final ultimate storm that is to come. 
and whether you believe that is a reality or not, determines how you build your life. You see, the difference between the person who says, Lord, Lord, and does it, and the person who says, Lord, Lord, and does not do it, is not really in what they believe Jesus to teach about many things. There are many people who say, Lord, Lord, and who live morally good, right, and upright lives. And they claim to have a great relationship with Jesus, and they walk in accordance with his morality, and they build their life on the foundation of his teaching in that regard. But they don't believe the core teaching that is necessary here, which is that there is a coming flood that needs to be survived. It is one thing to say, Lord, Lord. It is another thing to say, Lord, Lord, and believe all of the words of Christ, not just the ones that we find convenient for our life. The one true coming judgment is the one that's at question here. And Jesus seems to think that if someone actually heard the full scope of what he taught and who had a relationship with him, the natural conclusion would be that they build their whole life in light of that revelation they've gotten. And if they do build their whole life in light of that revelation, they'll build their life so that it won't be for this life, but so that it will be able to survive into eternity, which is to come. That's the test. This judgment from Christ is perfect and it's complete. And there is no escaping it. Because God the Father has perfect knowledge of everything that we have ever done. He knows all the positive things that we think about other people. He knows all the very not-so-positive things that we think about other people. He knows the spite that is in our heart towards our neighbors, towards others, towards those who aren't like us, towards those who don't share our values and beliefs. He knows the kind of wickedness that is present in the human heart to prioritize itself over others. And what's scary about that coming judgment is not that he knows, it's also that he knows those things and he is perfectly just as well. Because it would be one thing for him to know, it would be another thing for him to execute perfect justice in light of what he knows. But scripture tells us not only that he knows, but also that he is perfectly just and righteous. That he knows and he will execute judgment as he has told us in his word. And the primary way we know about this judgment is not really Ezekiel, it's not Isaiah, it's not Moses, it's not Elijah. They're not the ones who talk most about the coming judgment. The single biblical author that speaks most about the judgment that is to come is not Paul, it's Jesus. If you don't believe me, and you just read the red letters of your Bible, that's where 95% of the information we have about the coming judgment is from. It's from the red letters. And so when Jesus says that if you say to him, Lord, Lord, but you don't execute his teaching, he's, a, he's very correct in that assessment. It's not a hard thing to miss that he believes that there is real judgment to come. And this makes, I think, many of us in the West uncomfortable because we don't like the idea that there is a consequence that is eternal in nature for people who are not found and rooted in Christ. We don't like that idea. But by what standard do we not like that idea? Because we're told in Scripture that God is holy. We don't like that one so much. We're told in Scripture that God is just. We like that one a little bit more. We're told that He is gracious and merciful and kind. We like all those things. And we're told ultimately that He is good and that He is loving. 
And all of these things exist in perfect harmony with God. He is not uneven in his distribution of love and justice or holiness and mercy. He's not unjust or unequal in how he shares those attributes. You and I are. We go either heavy on judgment or we go heavy on grace and mercy. We are very unequal with how we treat other people. But God is not so. God is perfect in his execution of both justice and mercy, both his uh, wrath and his love. All of these things about God are perfect in their unity and in their harmony. And as a result of them being perfect, that presents a great problem for all of us. Because by his own account, the same books and the same scriptures and the same passages that tell us about his perfection and his goodness and his holiness and his love for mankind, those are the same books and verses and paragraphs that tell us about the real wrath that is coming for all who are in sin against God. And that wrath that is coming is a terrifying wrath. It is a storm that is so severe that if we knew it was coming, we would build not first by constructing a very beautiful building, but we would build with a doomsday kind of mentality to dig to dig deep, and to get down to a foundation that would survive. And only when we have met that foundation would we begin to build upon it. If we don't get to that foundation, we live as people who do not take seriously the words of our Lord. The same Lord who we say he is Lord, Lord of our life. But if we do take his words seriously, if we do believe him, then not only do we call him Lord, Lord, but we also do the things that he tells us to do. Because we take him at his word when he says that there is wrath and that he is loving and that he is the answer to the problem of mankind against a holy God. We take him at his word when he says all these things. And not only do we build our life on that foundation, but everything within our life is built on the parameters of that foundation. We don't build part of our life on the foundation and part of it on the sand outside of the will and commandments of God. We build our entire lives on that foundation. Which means when we say he's Lord, he executes his lordship by giving us structures and giving us blueprints of how to build. And he tells us in a very loving way that it is not good for you to live this way. It's better for you to live in the way that I have said to live. Which means we believe him at his word when he says that sex is for marriage. And even if that's difficult for us to reconcile, we, we take him at his word. Because we say that if he's good enough to have warned us of the coming judgment, he's also good enough to give us a firm foundation on which to build to survive that judgment. We take him at his word when he says that not only is it good for sex to be for married people, we also take him at his word when he says it's good for you to invest in people rather than careers and finances and all of the things that you could personally benefit from. He says it's better to get all of your unrighteous wealth and leverage it for people and for relationships because a soul is eternal. And everything else is finite in this lifetime. Everything else will not make it through the coming judgment. But he loves us so much that he tells us what will and what will not make it. He loves us so much that he tells us not only what foundation to build, but how to build the foundation. So when he tells us to be hearers and doers of his word, He's telling us primarily that we should not just be those who intake information from Scripture, but also we should be those who apply information from Scripture. That doesn't mean 
we don't intake scripture. Because you can't do something if you don't know what it is that you ought to do. When he says, be hearers of my word, he's saying to read your Bibles, to listen to sermons, to read books by Christian authors, to discuss these truths among one another, to study theology, to meditate, to memorize scripture, to get all of the information into your brain and into your heart and into your soul. Because in so doing, if it's really in your brain and really in your heart and really in your soul, it will flow out of the way you conduct yourself. It will inform how you choose to spend your time. It will inform how you choose to spend your finances. It will inform whether you do or do not share the gospel with people who are lost. It will inform whether you do or do not submit your will to God's will when you are conflicted about what is the best decision for your life. It will inform a whole host of the way in which we live. Because when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that Christ raised him from the dead, we are guaranteed to be saved. But the way in which we know that confession is true is by witnessing how we conduct our lives. That's how we know it's true. Now you might be asking yourself, why, why is it that it's necessary for such a judgment to come? Why is it necessary that God actually breaks down any of the houses? Couldn't he just let them all stand? His holiness and his wrath is the storm. And if we want to dwell with God, if we want to have unity and fellowship with him, we need to recognize that we need a structure that is unshakable. Because any structure that can be shaken will be eviscerated when God comes. What we don't often realize about Judgment Day is it's not so much about God sending people away from himself. is that it, Judgment Day is God superseding himself back onto creation. And in his goodness, he saves those who are identified in Christ. But his holiness remains. And so when he puts himself on wicked people, his holiness is destructive. And it's a burning fire. And it's wrathful. And it's felt and experienced by those creatures in that way. Because God is fully holy. And so for those of us who uh, want relationship with Christ but not for ourselves to be holy, we mistake what it is to have unity with Christ. It requires holiness. It requires perfection. That's why Adam and Eve had to be thrown out of the garden. So we, we have to take God at his word. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author will conclude his sermon by saying that the reason that things need to be shaken, the reason that the voice needs to come and shake all the things both in heaven and on earth, is so that those things which are unshakable remain. And the things that are unshakable are the eternal things. It's Christ and his righteousness. It's God and his love, his perfect holiness, his perfect unity with us. And if we are in Christ, we also are unshakable. Not because we're unshakable, but because we're on a foundation that is unshakable. And therefore, we make it through. Not by our own righteousness, not by our own merit, but by Christ's righteousness. So what is the encouragement then in these verses? Often I think it's easy for us to see all of this and just become very introspective and very self-centered when we start looking and examining our own hearts and asking, am I really saved? But I think there is a great note of encouragement in these verses, which is that God loves us so much that he tells us exactly how to survive the coming judgment. He doesn't leave it up 
to our own musings and our own thoughts. He doesn't say that there's a certain morality bar that you need to reach, but I'm not going to be specific about it, so you go figure it out. Because that's what the world preaches about many of the kinds of gods that we believe in. It says that God will love you and accept you into his arms if you're morally good. But they don't ever specify what that standard of moral goodness is. Here in these verses, we have a clear standard, a clear plumb line to measure our life against. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? That's the standard. No guesswork, no questioning, no uncertainty, a definite answer. And with a definite coming judgment and a definitely holy God, it is good to have a definite answer. It's like when you know that you're going to have a certain kind of question, even a difficult question on a test, and your professor tells you ahead of time, study for that question. Know how to answer that question when it comes. It's going to be worth all the points on the test. And then some people take that professor at their word, and they study and they diligently study, and when that question is there, they are found with confidence on that test. But there are also those who don't take the professor at his word and who won't study and who will be found wanting on that day. Not because the professor didn't warn. And even for us, it's not because Christ didn't warn. It's often just because we don't believe the warnings when we hear them. So I encourage you to examine yourself in this way. What kind of house are you building? In what way are you building your life? Is it rooted on some kind of foundation found in Christ? Is it rooted in the foundation that's found in Scripture? Or is it rooted on some other foundation? I don't think it's that difficult for us to tell. If you examine and if you think and if you ponder for any length of time, if you get down to the core of why you do the things you do, the whole testimony of your life should be in unison. Not only do you profess with your mouth, not only do you believe in your heart, but also you live with your life the testimony of faith. That testimony is true and sure, and it will survive on the day of judgment. And so we who know that wrath is coming, not only do we believe that when we see it, not only do we study it, not only do we theologically agree with it, but we also take that and we allow it to inform every single aspect of our life. What kind of a life are you building? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, you give us confidence in your word that we will be found on the day of judgment in Christ, firmly rooted, planted, and that we will have no reason for shame, that we will have reason for confidence in that day. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that that word brings to us. We thank you that this is not something you've left up to us to figure out on our own, but that you yourself came down to earth to make it possible for us to be right with you. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have made us alive together with Christ by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we pray and we ask that that testimony would not be something that is only theological in our minds, but also lived and breathed and embodied in every part of our being. Would you conform us into the image of Christ? We ask in your name. Amen.